0: And welcome to the IBHS Disaster Discussions Podcast. Uh, I am Senior Meteorologist Sarah Dillingham here at IBHS, we're in our studios to welcome you to our next episode. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Uh, you might notice we've had that smiling face of Armand Brody here with us for almost the last year now, but um, we've uh, had Armand move on to uh, his next career journey, so while we will miss his uh, wonderful storytelling uh, and his boisterous voice here on the microphone, uh, we very much Wish him well and know that we're going to still keep him close here in the IBHS family. He cares very much about our mission. So I uh, just want to give him a little nod there and thank him for all the great work that he's done with us. Uh, I hope that you'll put up with me on the microphone for a little bit over the next hour or so as we have this discussion. Um, I do have two guests who are going to join me today. Uh if you're familiar with IBHS at all, you've probably seen these guys before. Uh, the first one is Dr. Ian Giamenko. He is our lead research meteorologist here at IBHS. And there also you'll see Mr. Steve Hawks. He is our director of wildfire policy. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be back, Sarah.
0: Yeah, and you've each uh, joined us on a, on a past episode of the podcast. And, and speaking of episodes, I was just thinking this morning, um, coming up next month when we release our uh, episode in October, we're going to be celebrating our one-year anniversary of the podcast. So I just want to thank all of our listeners and viewers that have stuck with us over the last year. And I hope you really enjoyed a lot of these uh, interviews that we've brought to you and learned a lot along the way. Uh, please continue to to view those podcasts and, um, and share your thoughts. We want to hear from you. What, what other things are we not talking about that you really want to hear about? Here from our IBHS scientists and from those in the various industries from insurance to construction, engineering, and you know, whatever else we can think of that has to do with uh, the perils of mother nature. So, was well, you might remember from a couple episodes back, we, uh, basically brought in a new uh, type of episode. We wanted to call this the On the Radar podcast series. And this is kind of a special edition that we're going to be doing from time to time when there are timely events that really we want to give you an inside look into some of the discussions that are happening here inside of IBHS with our researchers and staff members to to gain gain some insights and understand what's happening in our world. One unfortunate event that we're going to have to talk about is the Lahaina wildfire that devastated those communities um, just a couple of weeks ago ago um, this was a very destructive fire um, we now in a, over 115 confirmed fatalities so um, guys we've seen these types of unfortunately we've seen these types of large conflagrations in the past and it's one of those I think for me and maybe a lot of other people when you think about Hawaii, you think about this lush tropical landscape. And the first thing that comes to your mind actually might be a hurricane, it at least it is for me. Um, but I'm just curious, I, I sort of wanted to get your perceptions really quickly as, as this all was unfolding, kind of what, what were you thinking? And, and Steve, you're a resident fire expert. You spent a, a career uh, fighting fires, working with Cal Fire. And, and now we just kind of want to hear what your perspective was on that.
2: Yeah, and, and unfortunately, this event is very similar to many um, other events that we've had in recent memory, like the um, Marshall Fire in Colorado 2021, the Camp Fire in Paradise, California 2018, where we see a uh, fire that starts in the wildland area very quickly um, because of the extreme winds that are on the fire during that event, mm-hmm. um, burn into a built environment into a community and then turn into kind of an urban conflagration, so the very similar um, event, uh, the Lahaina fire, to these other events.
0: Mm -hmm. Ian, your perspective?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, Steve kind of got it. There's a lot of similarities with this fire and the Marshall fire. Um, Unfortunately, you know, these kind of conflagration events follow really drought at whatever time scales and then high wind environments. um, That leads us to have volatile fuels, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of the combinations of things that um, were players in urban fires of old, I mean, think back you know, centuries, uh, we put a whole lot of structures close together that have little fire resistance from an external uh, perspective. And then you throw in the wildfire as just a catalyst. That that's what it's acting as under these kind of conditions. And it's very unfortunate that the probability of this kind of outcome is actually very high. Um mm-hmm. And, and on the Hawaii aspect, yeah, you know, a lot of you know, perceptions may be tropical climate, but it's still it's still a tropical islands that are that have terrain. So on the downsloping or lee sides, those those areas are often arid. Um, as as air moves down the slope of the terrain, it dries out, and the islands aren't a stranger to fire. It just so happened we put one right up against a community, and unfortunately, we know the outcomes. Uh, or at least the probabilities of these outcomes are very high, that we're going to have this this uh, built environment conflagration once fire enters these communities. That's the kicker. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we saw that chain of events come together again um, in, in Lahaina.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into some of those uh, specifics, specifically how that uh, moved into this particular community. What was the landscape like there where that fire initiated? But, Ian, you alluded to some of the conditions that are favorable for wildfires. One, you know, you mentioned drought, which we did have uh, some drought that was present in that area. But one thing I did want to talk about is this was unfolding in the media and some of the coverage that we were watching. There were a lot of references to Hurricane Dora, which was spinning um, quite a way south uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And so some people were saying, oh, well, these were these winds were generated by Hurricane Dora. Well, Hurricane Dora was not really directly involved in that. So let's talk about a little bit of the meteorological setup that created those fire weather conditions that day.
1: Yeah, in a very basic sense. This was not a fire hurricane kind of together thing. Um, Hurricane Dora was simply serving as a low pressure center that was about 700 miles to the the south of the, the Hawaiian island chain, but you had a very strong ridge of high pressure to the north, all that did was induce a, a stronger than normal pressure gradient um, that helped enhance the easterly trade winds that are there this time of year regularly, uh, tropical climates are dominated by the trade winds. Um, And so we just added a little bit more in terms of pressure gradient to drive the winds. And of course, from that direction, air is going to go flow up the the, the dormant volcanoes, and then down the other side toward Lahaina as air moves down the slope, just like the Marshall Fire east of the Rockies. Or if you think about Santa Ana Diablo wind events in California, it's going to dry out and accelerate. And you put fire into that environment that already has a, a drought and this is the chain that that now it feels inevitable uh, but that's a little bit of the weather so this wasn't a hurricane induced wildfire we've even heard commentary about that all uh, all the, the the tropical system was doing was serving as an area of low pressure to help enhance that pressure gradient and and dora had actually a very small wind field too so this this wasn't the hurricane circulation influencing that environment but more so just changing the the trade wind pattern
0: Right. And I think it's always important to make those kinds of clarifications because it, it does matter how we understand the perils, because obviously here at IBHS, we're very keen on the science behind the peril, and making sure that we are properly representing what it does in the atmosphere, because then then we're going to import a structure into that flow. And we need to know what's actually happening, meteorologically speaking, before we can diagnose exactly what's happening in the built environment as it interacts with those. So that's a good point of clarification. Now, um, you guys have already referenced uh, Marshall, Colorado fire. It was December, 2021. Um, that was another deadly wildfire conflagration. Um, Steve, I want to get your perspective on this one. And you know, we talked about Lahaina. Um, we dealt with these grasslands. Like what, what was the landscape there? How did we get from uh, this, this grassland fire to get into the city of Lahaina?
2: Yeah. So the um, uh, community of Lahaina was surrounded by uh, grassland areas and uh, And typically, we see fires start um, with possibly the exception of being lightning fire, but start in fine fuels like uh, grass, leaf litter, um, pine needles, duff, things like that. So that's where fire starts. And then um, it can burn really quickly in grass fire. Um, Fire will burn faster in grasslands than it will through brush or timber areas. And with those winds that were there on Lahaina, um, uh, blowing through Lahaina that day, Those winds, along with that volatile fuel of the grassland areas, pushed that fire, um, which started pretty close to Lahaina, into the town uh, very quickly. And so um, once it got into the town, then it just spread um, through the the three main vectors that we see um, from home to home. And those vectors being um, embers are one of the primary reasons of uh, fire transmission from wildland fire to a a structure and that can occur either directly where an ember lands on the structure itself on a vulnerable component and ignites that component or enters the home through an opening such as a vent and um, and ignites a component on the inside of the house so uh, those are the direct transmissions or embers can indirectly ignite a structure by landing um, usually in that five feet surrounding the structure um, and igniting flammable material in that five feet, which puts fire directly at the side of the structure and allows that fire to um, transfer from the other two modes, which are uh, direct uh, flame contact or radiant heat exposure uh, to the house. So um, we see about 90% of home destruction is directly attributed uh, to ember exposure. And, um, you know, unfortunately, once a house Starts on fire, there's about a 90 uh, to 95% chance that it will be completely destroyed unless there's uh, fire department intervention.
0: Yeah, and Steve, I'm so glad that you touched on the three methods of ignition because, you know, I. I think that, um, I know And before I started at IBHS, I, I spent a, a career, more than a decade in broadcast meteorology and I thought I knew how wildfires spread, but then you get to a place like IBHS where you can see the science behind and you see all the different ways that fire can spread. And I think oftentimes we have this visual, if you've not experienced that before, you have this visual, well, it's a massive wall of flames that just is wind driven and it's just this wall of fire that uh, you're running from or fire crews are just battling this line of fire, but it's really not like that. So Sometimes that is the case, uh, depending on where you are, but oftentimes it might be these spot fires that are generated as these embers that you're talking about are carried downwind and can, like you said, ignite spots in little areas. And if there's enough fuel, then we could see potentially that spread to structures. And then we have structural embers, right? Which is another type of ember that we have to deal with. Um, so Ian, kind of keeping in the theme with the ember, I just kind of mentioned we've got structural embers. We also have vegetative embers. Let's talk a little bit about the characteristics of those and how wind carries those respectively, because it is a little bit different.
1: Yeah, we'll start with kind of looking at the fine fuel grasslands. Um, in this scenario you 're not generating the the large embers that that say a traditional forest fire those kind of fuels a crown fire is going to be generating, or some of those have the the true plume driven fires where these large particles can really get lofted um pretty high i mean some of those updrafts and those plume fires are you know ninety plus miles per hour in this case, you have grassland fuels, one creating really long stretched flames under those those uh, wind conditions and it's moving very fast, but the same high winds help extinguish those little tiny grassland embers very quickly. That fuel was consumed very, very fast. Um, so in this case, we're probably looking at direct flame and radiant heat that started the very first ignitions. But then as Steve mentioned, you start this transition over to those three dominant mechanisms all going at the same time, structural embers. I, I think there's an area that, that, there's a lot of research needed on how those tumble and move in, in a very complex wind flow environment, which is a suburban terrain scenario. But those are often bigger, a lot more heat energy. They're consumed at at different rates than our vegetative fuels. And they're just all of it's just getting pushed along by the wind flow. And what's downwind, right? Homes, businesses, and the fuels that surround them. Not to mention they're getting propelled. It's just a recipe for this 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 catastrophe to unfold, and, and I think that's kind of the chain events that we saw here with Lina, which actually mimics the Marshall Fire um, pretty well from a bulk scenario perspective
0: yeah yeah that's right and then I, I kind of wish we have these uh which I have one of these with me right now we have these 3d printed embers and they can they can be about yay big um so they can be uh, pretty large pieces of debris that that get lofted and then can carry that fire and it's just basically a match waiting to to light and uh, light something that it sits on so yeah and so we've talked about kind of the concert of all these three playing together and how volatile of an environment that creates. so I'm glad that we've kind of set the stage on the weather conditions for the day how fire can spread through the community and how it has spread through this community at least based on our analysis thus far. So I want everybody to keep those ignition methods in mind because when they're working in concert that's when mitigation becomes so important and that's when we're going to talk about why that is later on. But now we know about the weather conditions well let's talk a little bit about the state of the community itself and to do that we have to take a look at the building codes that were in place for like how are the codes um, structured so that these homes and businesses are built to a certain standard. Standard, that meets wind criteria fire criteria etc so Ian as our uh, resident codes uh, expert could you shed a little bit of light on that and what the building code um, landscape was like in Lahaina
1: yeah if you look at Hawaii just as a state they've done a remarkable job really improving their their building code adoption enforcement on the wind side you know they have the 2018 international residential code but um, I want folks to actually really understand that often the wildland urban interface codes are separate that This is a problem, and we can talk about this later, that the IRC, IBC deal with uh, elements of interior fire. Look at my house right in the room I'm sitting. I've got interior sprinklers in here. Um, There's provisions on fire spread through the wall systems. But none of this tackles the external source of fire, which is the wildfire acting as a catalyst here. So while we had the IRC, 2018 IRC in place, the elements that are included in wildland urban interface codes, because they're kept separate, were not, in, were not in place. Hawaii has done a good job. They have adopted a wildland urban interface standard that's based on the uh, one that's developed by the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA. But we are unsure like where those WUI-designated areas were. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of their materials on planning, their 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 county wildfire protection plan called CWPP, hazard mitigation plans, had great information. They were on the right path. But in terms of actual implementation, it, it's been a patchwork there for fire. Whereas windside, they, you know, we all thought this, right? We thought the threat was more wind related than fire, even though Hawaii does, the islands have a history of wildfire. We were so focused on the wind element, maybe it was, we we just didn't grasp how much progress was needed quickly. And that's, that is is the story of all how natural hazards become catastrophes. Mm-hmm. We just either didn't keep up or the event exposes where we've either had to make compromises or just didn't get there fast enough. And I think we saw that play out here. So um, not to mention we had a, a lot of older construction. Uh, if you think the development in the islands from the 1960s through the 70s, uh, that's way before the modern codes that that we see today. And there's some elements we could talk about the success stories in a little bit. Um, and that older construction, that pre-modern, you know, HVAC era, um, those homes are designed for ventilation, right? It's a warm, arid climate. We want to cool those structures, so the the point was to have air flowing through it. Well, what does that do with embers you probably have introduced a pretty big vulnerability um and it's we believe that that was probably an element that got exploited and, and like mm-hmm. all catastrophes the hazard finds the weak point in the chain you, you hear us talk about system ad nauseum right well mm-hmm. that's what we're saying like if you don't have the system the hazard whatever it is if it's a windstorm or a wildfire, it's gonna find the weak point mm-hmm. and and unfortunately the outcomes it's it's almost predetermined because the system wasn't there.
0: Right, right. And it's we, we talk about that with any peril, right? That the wind is going to find the most vulnerable vulnerable point in, the fire is going to do the same thing, uh, and so on and so forth. So um I'll stay with one thing that you said really quickly, Ian, and and bring in Steve. So Steve, what um We kind of have looked at the building codes and the building stock. Ian mentioned the eaves and the way that they are constructed and that with ventilation, what that happens is that can suck these embers in. So within this community, what were some of the vulnerable components that really stood out to us? I mean, eaves are one that we very, very much focus on here at IDHS because we know there's some science behind that and how that traps heat and because those embers can be um, ingested into those vents.
2: Yeah, and it's all about the exterior um, construction materials of the home. So, from you know the roof to the eaves, vents, decking, and this immediately surrounding area, um, including uh, the nearby structures and how densely packed that community is. If you have a higher density housing community uh, where buildings are close together, that really uh, sets the stage for that uh, fire to go from one building that is on fire. Uh, through direct uh, flame contact or radiant heat to the next building that's downwind and, and continue on. So as, as Ian mentioned, this system of things, um, they have to work together. And it only takes one ember or uh, one small thing. And oftentimes it can be just a small thing uh, for the fire to transmit from one building or the wildland to the next building and continue that cascading effect. So it's that system of things in Lahaina, the open-eve construction, uh, the densely packed uh, community, um, vegetation, uh, pretty dense vegetation that's around the structures, particularly in that zero to five foot area that immediately surrounds the structure. Um, even if it's uh, in in you know, good condition, it's maintained and watered, um, it can still transmit fire under these extreme condition, conditions that we see on a fire like this
0: yeah even if it is green vegetation, there is still an element of the fact that it is still a fuel uh that we have to consider and when ignited, a lot of these fuels will still burn um so yeah, so you mentioned that about the um the, the structure separation. I just kind of want to give a nod to the the experiments that we have been in over the last couple of years with on the fire side of things, looking at wind driven structure to structure fire spread, and we're looking at what are those critical distances at which ignition occurs. Let's say if I have a shed or some other structure, potentially a house in this case, that is on fire, how close can that spacing be to the next structure before um, ignition occurs, whether it be a structural ember moved across, or radiant heat, or direct flame contact. So those are all kinds of the things that we are looking at here at idhs and we have seen here on our campus the vulnerabilities of those eaves where we've had eve ignitions and it can it all it takes is like you'll see a little bit of smoke and the next thing you know the whole side of the wall is on fire the eve is on fire and once that fire gets into those attics it just makes it that much more difficult to fight from a firefighting perspective and, and steve i'll get your perspective on kind of the fire services portion um, here in just a couple of minutes but I wanted to jump back really quickly to um, the codes. Ian noted the, the WUI codes, and, and you come from a place, uh, California, right? Born and raised in, in the Paradise area. So you've experienced fire and campfire. You've been in the fire services your entire career. So um, tell us a little bit about the, how the iWUI codes are structured, and, and it can vary state to state. Uh, California is probably leading the way as one of those that have a, um, probably one of the better um, frameworks there.
2: Yeah, in California, we have the California Building Code Chapter 7A, um, and nationally, we have the um, ICC, uh, IWUI Code. We also have NFPA codes, and some uh, jurisdictions throughout the country have uh, various versions of those WUI codes. Um, but the, as I mentioned earlier, it's all about the exterior systems and components, building materials of the structure, and how can we make them more resilient to wildfire Um, And again, everything from the roof to the ground, uh, decks and immediately surrounding areas. And we've seen in in instances uh, here in California um, where the California Building Code, Chapter 7A, um, structures that are built to that standard have a higher probability of survival than uh, structures that are built previous to the standard uh, coming online. Um, We understand that all fires are different. Um, there's a lot of variables that they don't, as you mentioned earlier, they don't burn as a continuous wall of flame with the same intensity across the entire fire area. There's spot fires that pro- uh, progress the fire out in front and then they burn together. Um, fire burns with different intensities throughout the fire area. So, but in general, uh, we have confidence that building codes do matter. They make a difference and they, they add to the uh, added survivability of a home.
0: That's right. Yeah. Codes are really important. And then also we, we noted it earlier. What is in that zero to five foot zone right up against the structure? It's that it's that vegetation, the dense vegetation, vegetation at all is right up against the home and ember lands on one of those things. Then you're creating a pathway for the fire. fires. One of those three ignition methods. Right. It's going to be the ember transfer. And then as that ignites, potentially direct flame and radiant heat contact. And that is the whole goal of mitigation is to try and prevent the fire from reaching your structure so that you can prevent those ignitions in the first place and not become one of those um, 90% chances that uh, your home could potentially become a total loss. So um, so Ian, you know, I'll uh, jump back to you really quickly. So now that we have sort of an understanding of the community, we understand the landscape that we're dealing with, and now we've interjected wind and wind-driven fire at that. So let's talk a little bit about how this um, conflagration unfolded in the city of Lahaina. We knew that it came in from those grasslands and started those structures, but um, how did that kind of work through some of the neighborhoods? What are the, some of the preliminary analyses that you've seen so far?
1: Yeah, it's, it's fire entered the communities, and we think it could have been at a couple of different places, but we're still you know there's still the investigation that's underway as to exact causes locations all of that um but what we do know is is under those kind of wind conditions as we've talked about you're gonna you're gonna match up those three ignition mechanisms And what happened initially, you moved, you had fire moving into an area where we're building separation distances where we're definitely less than 30 feet on the average, but you started to get into kind of that critical zone that we're starting to understand from experimental testing And that 10 to 20 feet zone is a very critical area. Um, Inside of 10 feet, mitigation elements have to be almost absolutely perfect. Um, We even know the best building materials, if you think about concrete fiberboard siding, will reach its limit with a fire exposure over some given point of time. But in that zone, that 10 to 25 foot area, mitigation elements really start to come into play. They don't have to be absolutely perfect, but a lot of the big bulk system components can work for you or they can work against you. And unfortunately we ran into the case where we had all sorts of fuel on the parcels, um, not just the structures themselves. And then you run into the fuels igniting around homes. You had a lot of older uh, wood panel siding. We've talked about the open eve construction, which is extremely vulnerable when fire gets into that zero to five foot zone. Um, so these factors just started that cascade and under those wind conditions, this gets out of hand really fast. Um, you have a community that's simply just acting as a fuel source. Um, you know, in mitigation, we need communities to be a fuel break, not a fuel source. Um, and unfortunately, the only thing in this case that really stopped the fire was, uh, Steve, you guys call it the, the, the Great Pacific fire break, is the ocean. Um, and that is a element of the urban fires of old where the only thing that stopped them was either geographic features like rivers, lakes, oceans, or it rained and the weather changed. So this was that kind of scenario. I want people to kind of grasp that. and if you look within the community, there are places where you can tell the fire exposure was more intense versus other places where you still had even elements of vegetation remaining, which tells you, okay, that wasn't this was an ember attack primarily in this zone. But there's structure within it. You can see how all of this is evolving in time to give you these subtle differences that, if you look hard enough, you can start to piece um, piece the chain of events together.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point to make, Ian, is that, um, you know, you, you piece together what's happening and you can kind of tell what was the ignition method based on what happened. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we had talked about um, sending a crew. I think we're having discussions about sending a crew to actually go on the ground and do some um, on, the, on the ground investigations. We have to do these post-disaster investigations sometimes with our researchers when we feel that there are some insights that can be gained uh, for us being there and applications to our research. And so we're still considering that, but we're certainly working with partners that are already there, but also looking at some of the aerial imagery, you can kind of pick up some of that as well. And you can really see the nature where uh, these clusters of neighborhoods that did not, portions of the neighborhoods that did not survive, and then some areas where you might have seen that that fuel break, right, where maybe an upstream fuel break. I believe you even noted uh, at one point there was a, a commercial development that seemed to have served as a fuel break upstream of a residential area. Then it didn't appear that the ignition was from that direction, um, downwind of that uh, commercial property, which seemed to have served as a fuel break. But then, unfortunately, fire may have come in from the other side of the neighborhood neighborhood um, from other structures, so you can also tell a lot um, from that on aerial imagery side.
1: Yeah, we we used a a, a big thank you to uh, Maxar Technologies for getting their imagery out very quickly, but um, also some uh, other synthetic aperture radar data sets that we were able to use, Um, and that gave us an initial feel about what was going on, and of course, aerial imagery and disaster response has become really the norm across all hazards. Um, So that gave us a picture of what actually sort of transpired. And you start putting that together with the weather information, you can do a little forensic analysis. But one of the critical features why I think we will probably have a ground team go over there is to look at the successes. You know, the success stories were not about really the community or people who consciously decided I'm going to mitigate fire. But you had a set of circumstances that came together that produced some elements that were Awful close to the things we talk about, to our wildfire prepared home standard, and they worked. Um, A lot of folks have seen the the metal, uh, the the red roof metal house, Mm -hmm. good zero to five, non-combustible wall material, class A roof. Three of the four critical actions that we talk about that are the start and and building spacing, so they're not dealing with more ember attack. The whole community, we had a community success, yeah. a modern built community that had less mature vegetation, but also it had modern HVAC inventing. It had um, good zero to five just because it didn't have as much mature vegetation, non combustible wall material, class A roof. They got probably three and a half. Of the four critical elements, the fourth being the vents that Steve talked about in protecting those vents and some of those wind elements that that, that we use in in attic ventilation now are actually pretty good at ember defense, especially the the Miami Dade wind driven rain um, specific vents that are used off ridge and ridge vents are really good at this. So there's kind of an overlap there. So our biggest focus on the ground will be looking at the success stories and can we actually document. A lot more about those structures than what we can see from the aerial image side Um, and I think that's going to be very important
0: yeah and Ian you and I have kind of talked about this every time we have you know like I said come from a broadcast meteorology uh, industry uh, spent nine years of the Weather Channel we cover disasters and what we do we we send people out in the field and we want to document the damage that has occurred we are looking for um, these survival stories, these, we're trying to tell these people stories, right? Of like what it is like for them on the ground, what this experience was like for them. Um, but at the same time, we we don't always get to see those success stories, and that's where the learning comes from. We can certainly learn from the bad parts of the of the disaster, and we should. But we also should see places where there were success stories, where it wasn't just luck that, you know, a tornado moved through and oh, it just skipped over that house. Well, what we know about tornadoes and what we also know about the building environment and building codes and how those components are connected on a structure, that's going to determine potentially the survivability. It's not always just a matter of luck. And, and Steve, I want to bring you in here because, as I mentioned, you had that long-standing career in the fire services, and, and you've been involved in some of these uh, post-event investigations. So as you're kind of combing through and Ian referenced some of the field crews that we'll be sending out, what are you guys doing and how are you trying to determine um, these luck cases versus the actually good mitigation and kind of what's that experience like?
2: Yeah, it's um, we really like to focus on areas um, where we had like the red roof house, that one house or, or a few houses that survived um, surrounded by many that didn't or the opposite situation uh, is um Ian mentioned, where we had a, a community that uh, had very little damage, uh, but you might have had one or two buildings within that area that uh, were d- damaged or destroyed. And so why did that occur? Um, you, you know, it, it, the building meets the needs to meet the requirements for combustion in order for the fire to get on the building and be destroyed. And for whatever reason, those requirements for combustion weren't met. So what cause those requirements not to be met. And uh, as Ian mentioned, the roof, all, all those things, vents, siding, that zero to five uh, foot zone immediately surrounding the house with no vegetation, nothing combustible in that zone is so critical. Um, so we really like to focus in on those areas and do a kind of a, a forensic analysis of um, how the fire approached. Uh, where did the fire come from? Um, what was surrounding the property, um, because we know uh, that structure separation distance is also so critical uh, for home survivability. So how close were other structures to the area? What was also on the property, fences, other, um, you know, outbuildings, uh, RVs, boats, the things that could have caught fire and can then spread that fire to the main residence. Um, and then also obviously looking at the structure itself and what were the building components and materials that you know prevented that structure from catching fire and and we've seen on many instances where things that we've um, tested in the laboratory environment at uh, the research center uh, we've seen those things play out in the field uh, where what we've uh, developed from science has happened in in the field so we're able to verify that our science is sound from a field perspective we also learn things in the field environment in these post-fire analysis where we see something and then we can take that back to the research center and and test that item and and then see why from a, a scientific perspective that thing is is occurring and why that is helping to transmit the fire to that structure. Um, so I think it's it's two twofold is really um, getting on the ground and, and learning from the homes that survived and then also those that didn't
0: yeah and that's one of the um the great things about um, having the research center here is that these things that we observe in the laboratory and then, Observe them in the field, and things that we learn from the field that we can then bring back into the laboratory. It's this circular um, knowledge chain, essentially, that we can kind of build out here and learn from each of those. And we can do that in a repeatable sense too. I mean, out here we're we're igniting uh, we're igniting wood sheds at varying distances over and over again with the same structure. We're measuring it. We're trying to look at heat fluxes and all these different types of data there. So um, that's one nice thing we can do here is that repeatability to try and understand the science behind what's really happening here. Um, And so I also want to note that there were just under 2,700 structures roughly that were destroyed in this fire. So Steve, when you think about um, the scale of these kinds of events, when you're having to comb through, you know, structure by structure, neighborhood by neighborhood, and, and look at these kinds of elements, I mean, if you've got an area that's completely burned. I mean, I'm not, it's difficult to try and gain some, but you, as you said, you try to gain some knowledge of that, uh, but that does take time. And so it could be several months, if not longer, before we see uh, maybe an initial report come out about some of the findings as to what uh, took place in this fire.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the size of the fire was about 2,200 acres, um, including the uh, Lahaina town. And um, so from a you know perspective of some other fires that we've seen, um, the Marshall Fire, the Camp Fire, it's a much smaller fire, but uh, still the the size of the destruction within the town um, was significant. And so combing through all that uh, takes a lot of time, and you want to you know make sure you take enough time to to be able to accurately um, determine what you know the modes of transportation of the fire through the community from structure to structure were. Um, so that we can uh, make improvements to codes um and 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 hopefully you know prevent uh, similar disasters from occurring in the future
0: yeah um Ian anything you want to add to that uh, portion of the conversation
1: yeah I th- you know um we can learn a lot just by looking is is mm-hmm. one of the the big phrases I always like to yeah. to throw out there um but in this case we we had a very unique event um, there was terrain. You know that there was slope down to the ocean, but in generally it was, it was rather homogeneous. So this is kind of an ideal case, and we also know from a, a the fire response element is very it's just limited somewhat by even by geography in the, the Hawaiian mm-hmm. island chain. So response can get overwhelmed in the best of circumstances, and in this case you you see what happens when a fire just simply has it, it can just run through a community. A little perspective, Lahaina, this fire will come in at about the seventh most damaging from a structures consumed perspective. It's actually very similar in numbers to the Gatlinburg, the Chimney Tops 2 fire um, on the, the eastern slope of the Appalachians. Uh, but in Lahaina, that was almost three quarters of the whole community. Um, that really puts it into kind of perspective of how bad this can get. Um And if you think about how bad, well, we can't, we can't have, I'm trying to say what we need is the community to help slow fire spread, because Mm -hmm. until we can do that, you start to think about, I look at Santa Rosa, California as one of those disasters waiting to happen. You can start thinking about communities, even in the the Eastern US uh, that butt up against um, terrain and, and forest areas and the flash drought elements. The Denver Metro, we saw it play out in the Marshall Fire. I mean, think about mm-hmm. that entire corridor from Fort Collins all the way to Colorado Springs. Our communities that butt up against these wildlands are going to have to start acting at a minimum to just slow fire progress, mm-hmm. um, and then at the end is to be a fuel break. But we aren't even close to this yet, so. That's what's really stood out with this event. Mm-hmm. But also there are successes. I want people to understand that we're success stories in the middle right. of this that really tell us a heck of a lot about what we're doing in the lab and computer simulations legitimately works in the field. And we've watched that over five. But I want people to, to start thinking, let's get out of this hopeless mindset over to, hey, science has caught up. Mm-hmm. We can do something about this. So I think that's one of the takeaways here.
0: Yeah, and that's absolutely right. I mean, what happened in Lahaina with that much of the town being consumed um, is the equivalent of a a large tornado moving through a, a small town and wiping out a town. I mean, that, that's essentially what, what happened just on the fire front. And it's this, um, you know, we immediately go to the peril. Well, the, the, the peril... It, The tornado was just too strong. The buildings couldn't withstand the the force of the wind. Um, The fire was just too hot and moved too fast. The buildings just had no chance. The fire service just, just had no chance. We know the science of how a building comes apart in a wind event. We have the codes that meet those needs that can prevent that from happening. And it's not a concrete fortress. It is an accessible tool that could be implemented in our building codes now and is in a lot of areas, a lot of the structural failures that we see in the severe convective space are mitigated against. The same is true for fire. We know the actions that can work. Is it hard to incorporate? Absolutely, because you were trying to change an entire train of thought that has really gone through decades, right? And it's changing perceptions. And while we can talk about the science, and I'm kind of straying off my plan here a little bit, but I think it's important to know that while we can talk about the science, it is important to remember that there are people ingesting the science. And there's people that are making decisions, then there are people that are taking in that information and deciding what to do with it. So I think that's another um, aspect of research that needs to be looked into is like, what are some of the behavioral things that um, people look at and whether uh, the sentimental value of wanting to remove landscaping um, out of their first five feet of their home. Um, but I'll kind of get some comments from both of you on that. Um, Steve, I'll start with you really quickly because you brought up the uh, the home ignition zone a few times and you're from California, I mean, that in And everybody knows that when you get a new home, it's like you want your vegetation and everything to look nice around the home. But it's a perception that understands that that's actually a risk for you.
2: Yeah, for sure. And we've uh, been able to determine, you know, research in our laboratory that that zero to five foot zone that immediately surrounds the house, including attached structures like decks and pergolas and things, that is the most critical uh, zone for defensible space. Mm And so that zone really needs to be non-combustible, nothing flammable in that area. As we mentioned, you know, the, the modes of transportation of getting the fire from the wildlands to the structure. Um, defensible space really looks at the, the last two, the direct flame contact and the radiant heat. And so removing anything uh, within that five feet where embers can come in, ignite a fire right up against the house is never a good thing to have a fire right at the house you're just setting yourself up to allow that fire to transfer uh, through direct uh, flame contact or radiant heat to a vulnerable component of the structure. And so uh, having that zone zero, just non-combustible, really tight, um, is so critical.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, um, and Ian, really quickly, I'll get your thoughts on, on the comments I made about the, uh, the, the public perception and change and enacting that change.
1: Yeah. It, you know, one of the things that it's that home ignition zone part that we already seemingly run up against a lot of just human elements and belief systems here. I I certainly understand that the exterior of, of one's home makes it feel like a home, right? Like you guys know me. I love my grass. I, I was a yeah. baseball player. I love ball fields. I love the beautiful grass of ball fields and I don't get to work on ball fields anymore, but I have my my yard. Um, I get that. So the the ways we can short circuit through those belief systems, and it's a working, it's kind of a stair-step thing. There's a few ways. One, experience an event directly. Two, have a close call. But three, there's your your social sphere when your neighbor does things. Mm -hmm. The communication between neighbors gets further than me scientists saying, make your zero to five foot zone non-combustible. Um, we can show videos in the lab that illustrates this, but a lot of folks will still mm-hmm. just tell you that's a science experiment. Yeah, That's not the real world. Well, we can mirror the real world pretty good, mm-hmm. and we've got some cases that show how this happens. But until you start getting those early adopter folks who really can take this, and other than experiencing an event. So if you ever talk to somebody who's experienced an the event, their whole perception changes almost immediately. At all mitigation. Um, But we have a lot of folks, we don't want you to have to experience an event to change your mind. Mm -hmm. We want you to understand that what we're telling you does work, but we also understand where you're coming from. So yes, this is a process, um, but that social network of your community plays a really big role in, in adopting any of these steps. Now, the place where you can pull out the, you call it the bazooka or the boulder whatever codes which is a policy decision that can take and go let we'll use a couple wind examples here and i don't be a little long-winded florida after hurricane andrew they took that out fired it the florida building code they're like okay we're going to do this directly that's what we're going to do coastal alabama did the fortified approach which was the voluntary program wildfire prepared Mm -hmm. home is based on that model the voluntary program and it just takes a little bit longer to climb up the mountain um but it probably was met with with a much more smoother process in terms of the pushback and all that. So you have a couple of pathways there. You got to decide you're gonna have to take one. I think if we don't, we're gonna sit here watching this scenario, just keep going. Um, we need to pick a path and communities or states or whomever can pick which one they want to take, which is the codification right off the bat. Let's just rip the band-aid off and go or go the voluntary route, put in the proper nudge factors, which includes everything from grants to insurance incentives, endorsements, to just simple outreach, education, and awareness, that mountain, you can get up the mountain the same way. Might take a little longer, but in general, it's a little more smoother, less contentious. Uh, But that's what we're left with. I I just don't think we can sit here standing in the fork of the road and just keep looking around. we are at that point in time that if we don't pick a path, this is just going to keep happening.
0: Right. And, you know, we talk about that in, in regards to building codes, right? I mean, let's say that, let's say in the building code and the fire code space, we got everything we wanted today, right now. We passed it tomorrow and everything else from that point on is going to be built like it should. We are a generation away from seeing that in a, in the built environment make a meaningful difference at scale, right? It's to, to say that if we have these, Big these isolated wildfire events that are large community impacts, but in the grand scheme of the United States, it's a small area. Same thing with large tornadoes, right? Or even low-end medium tornadoes and the damage path that we see and things that we can mitigate against. But that doesn't mean that the, the that, that just isn't that much more important to understand that when these kinds of things happen, that we learn from them and that we can educate those people who are enacting the mitigations themselves on the on the parcel and home level, business level, and the policymakers as well, so that those people that are making those decisions for you, that you select and put into office to make these kinds of decisions for you, that they are making informed decisions that aren't going to negatively impact you 20 years down the road when something else happens again. And it's just this repeat, this cycle of disaster that we strive so much for here at IBHS to break that chain, right? We, we don't want to see that to where we're not building, right? Because when we, and I'm kind of jumping towards what I wanted to end on, but from the rebuilding perspective, we need to be asking those questions now. Yes, we want to rebuild. Yes, as a community, we will come together and to do that. But we need to be asking, how are we going to build back? The old way wasn't sufficient. We've got to be better for the next time. How can we better be better for the next time? I think is really what we need to ask.
1: Yeah, I I, I want to make a point too. So one of the one of the roadblocks that f- we face in the wildfire arena, we've long kept our wildland urban interface codes as a separate piece that there are special places that, that it can be adopted and applied. We have a sort of similarity on the wind side. There's the wind hurricane-prone coast, the windborne debris region, but it's still baked in general into the international residential code, international building code. What we've seen looking across the whole landscape, and and I'll take California and Utah aside because they have their own statewide programs that are wonderful. Um, Having these separate has made it very easy for people to put their head in the sand or put the blindfold on. Oh, it's separate. I'm going to ignore that. It's not in the IRC, not in the IBC. I can just ignore that. We can't do that. And, And I think ultimately... 20, 30 years from now that this may be beyond even, you know, all three of our careers here. (laughs) This stuff's got to get into the IRC. So it it becomes harder for folks Mm -hmm. to really ignore and exclude it. Um, But right now it's way too easy for that to be done. Um, And the use of codes in the wildfire is very much like a, think of it like a quilt with a bunch of holes that moths chewed in it or something like that (laughs) where you have some pieces and parts little local jurisdictions that have done great um, but there's a big chunk of holes um, sitting Mm -hmm. in it so it is more complex than than the other hazards in that respect but we can make the same kind of progress i think it's just like I said, I, I'm not even sure now that I sit here and think about it, the fork in the road is actually the right analogy. We can actually use both mm-hmm. paths, right? Codes yeah. will set us up for the communities of tomorrow, and we can use the voluntary efforts and those kind of nudge factors to help deal with the retrofit problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just kind of my 17 cents or so on, <laughs> on the path forward. Um, but right. I do think we got to get going.
0: Yeah, and you hit on the retrofit side, right, because the the codes are the long game, the retrofits, what we can do right now, today, tomorrow, to make an, an impact on the parcel level and ultimately community level. And Steve, really quickly, I want to to let you uh, speak on this at all. I mean, if you have any comments on that, you know, please share them. But then I also wanted to kind of get your perspective. Uh, when you were at Cal Fire, you were very much involved on, on the community level, trying to help develop those programs. You know, Ian earlier, and you guys, I think, both mentioned the um, the Community Wildfire Protection Plan, the CWPP, that, that is in place in a lot of these low communities that are threatened by fire so one one get your thoughts on everything that we just said because it was a lot and then two kind of your uh, viewpoints there on on attacking this at the community level
2: yeah uh, just for the codes i think right uh ian's right on uh with we have to get codes in place to address the new newly built community and going forward then we have to have programs in place to address the already existing uh built community um and that's the vast majority of our housing stock uh, businesses are built previous to these codes so we have to address that they're definitely vulnerable um, I think there's the perception out there that um, you know wildfire risk that's something that's happened elsewhere that's a California issue that's not going to happen in my community um, and and uh, you know we've seen this fire in Lahaina. if it's if it's not a wake-up call it should be um, because this can happen Anywhere where you put, you know, drought conditions, windy conditions, alignment of uh, dry fuels, and these windy conditions in the built environment uh, together, uh, this type of event can unfold. Uh, we're seeing it, uh, you know, elsewhere right now in Canada, in Greece, across the globe. Um, so uh, this is an all of us issue, and so that gets to the community uh, piece. Um, so it's everybody working together to make a community more resilient so getting the building code in place having a retrofit program to deal with the existing building um, structures uh, defensible space making sure that uh, the you know your property has a good clearance uh, that it needs to prevent that direct flame and radiant heat exposure to the structure and allow firefighters to get in there and defend those structures Um, and then You know, the other components of the community is uh, access and egress, allowing people to get out of the community in a timely and and safe manner. Um, Mm -hmm. And then firefighters have good access into the community. We've seen in a number of uh, instances, Lahaina being one of them, Paradise uh, Campfire, where uh, a large portion of the community is impacted uh, virtually simultaneously, and it makes it difficult uh, for the community wide to evacuate. Um, Road systems just typically aren't built to um, handle that uh, amount of traffic in uh, that short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then when you put fire in the area, um, fire can impinge upon the roadways, blocking the the exit of the traffic from the community. Uh, Trees can fall over because they were impacted by the fire Power lines can fall in the roadway and block, you know, exit and access to the the, the community. Um, so, having a good, you know, road system that's hardened um, so that we have good ingress and egress uh, from the community. Per- these plans in place, uh, community wildfire protection plans in California. We have the safety element of the general plan um, and a local hazard mitigation plans. Having these plans all aligned. Uh, so that the community can be more resilient as they implement projects to you know, uh, put uh, fuel breaks around critical infrastructure um, ar- on roadways, the primary ingress and egress routes, so that roadways can remain clear so that traffic can get out. Um, it's a very complex um, system of things, just like uh, a home is a system of things that need to work together A community has a system of things that also needs to work together in order for the the evacuation to occur, the firefighters to get in, the community to uh, continue to function as it needs to um, during the event and post-event and get people back in there, back to some sort of normalcy uh, as soon as possible.
0: Right. Yeah, you want to try and, one slow the spread, right? Reduce the impact so that you can come home faster when it is all over and hopefully have a home to come back to. And um, Steve, I wanted to ask you this earlier, and you kind of noted it here, um, the difficulty in the um, the fire services response in this particular case, because <laughs> when we have these community plans, it is absolutely imperative that we have them, Right. But we also know that it's at any given point in time, components of that plan may fall off the radar or uh, not be not be accessible. One of those in this case was the air attack. Right when you've got these very strong winds aloft, you're not able to fly in winds that are too strong. So if you have an over reliance on, let's say, in, in your plan you have an over reliance on the air attack of, of these fires, that's going to put you at a severe detriment if that's one of your key firefighting methods, and then you. Can't fly that because of the winds. Um, what what kind of did we see in this particular case um, with the fire services? Because we, it is a unique location in that it is on an island. I mean, where are you calling in additional services from? It is a very difficult situation um, if something goes wrong.
2: Yeah, as soon as the fire starts, we generally have an initial response to the incident, and depending mm-hmm. on the location, it's uh, you know, and in the, in the resources that they have available. That includes air resources like helicopters and air tankers, and ground resources like fire engines and bulldozers and uh, hand crews that cut line uh, through the vegetation. Um, when you're on an island, it makes it much more difficult. Um, here in the states, we have mutual aid where um, they can, you know, send closer resources that are near to the nearby the fire, um, just down the road uh, in their fire engines to the fire and get there in a relatively quickly amount of time. Uh, that's not the case over on the islands as you said it's hard to transfer uh, equipment and resources from one island to the next and and um, so we we use our our uh, all the resources available to us to uh, efficiently attack the fire and put it out as quickly as possible because we know if we don't these fires can uh, burn into these built environment communities and become a, a deadly and, and destructive fire and we want to uh, definitely avoid that uh, at all cost Um So under these windy conditions, no matter where you're at in the world, um, the the air resources just can't uh, function Mm. under those conditions until the wind dies down. Um, But the the ground resources under these windy conditions, they are uh, under extreme um, safety hazard of attacking the fire from the front of the fire, the advancing part of the fire, what we call as the head of the fire. Um, so they'll, they'll attack the fire from the sides or the flanks of the fire and then defend structures. Our, our primary focus is life safety first, uh, then property uh, structure defense, and then protecting uh, wildland areas. And so evacuating the community, um, defending structures, uh, they'll do that to their best of their ability uh, with the equipment that they have and as safely as they can do it.
0: Yeah, and that, that, that's so important, um, being able to, like I said, access all of those resources um, when you're having that. And it, and it really does stress the importance of having that system of mitigations in place on the structural level so that you don't end up with these conflagrations that are getting out of control um, and basically overwhelming those services. It it basically gives you a fighting chance and gives you a chance for those those strategies to work. It's going to slow the spread and really limit the extent of that. And so that's why we talked about that a little bit earlier. That's why it's so important to make sure that at the parcel level, we're doing this and at a larger community scale, your neighborhood, your small town of Lahaina could be one of these communities um, on that scale. And so um, really quick, I wanna transition into um, a little bit about, we've talked about mitigation through this entire um, uh, broadcast, but I kinda wanna jump back to June, 2022. Um, Here at AVHS, we launched our Wildfire Prepared Home designation program. We've kind of alluded to it a couple of times. And we took this systems mitigation approach here, but as I've mentioned before, it takes it at the parcel and community level. So Ian, I'll jump in because I know you and Steve are kind of on the um, the leading edge here of helping to develop our wildfire prepared community, uh, which is the next phase uh, of this type of designation program and trying to get these mitigations applied on a larger scale because yes, the parcel is important, but as we saw play out in Lahaina, when all three of those ignition factors are working together, you really do need a system not only at the Parcel, but a system in the community. So let's talk a little bit about um, kind of what you've observed as you've you guys have started developing this program. And, and Steve, I'll get your thoughts next.
1: Yeah, so one of it was was taking taking the known science uh, that we have, as well as really sound engineering judgment that's based on that information. Um, at the parcel level, um, we know we can make a difference, but the really big difference falls at the community scale. Um, Can we get this type of mitigation in mass? But we also talked about the things that intertwine within our homes and businesses, those connective fuels, whether that's wood fencing, outbuildings, any of it that takes fire across the nodes of structure to structure. Um, If we address that at the community scale, we really have a wonderful opportunity to slow these things down and to give the, the men and women like Steve who are dealing with the response to a chance, or to stop it altogether. Yeah. Um, at the parcel level, we can see the successes and we can build upon that. But to really create these fire-resistant communities that, that can live with fire as a part of their landscape, um, and in many parts of the world, that fire is a vital part of ecosystems. So we have to live with it. We have to get up and scale. Um, and that's going to come down to pieces and parts of not only the parcel mitigation levels. We talked about ingress, egress ability, um, even uh, managing vegetation outside the communities or not necessarily vegetation, but the fuels, Just let's just call it fuels that surround our communities and then getting the, the, the pieces into large chunks of, of real estate that um, can slow or even stop that chain of events from, from happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and Steve, I'll jump over to you on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Wildfire Prepared Home is a good example of a program that's, you know, based in science that implements a systems-based approach. And and as I said uh, earlier, uh, we know that Chapter 7A makes a difference. Um, Wildfire Prepared Home, we know will make a difference. Um, so it's it's getting that education out there, getting people to act. We know that these things work. We just need people to acknowledge that, that they work and and take the action that's necessary to start them on that path, because this can take a little while to achieve all these mitigation measures. But the, the key is to get started. Once you start, then you have a process in place, you know, for you can continue that to, to get the whole system in place. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and to that point, once you get the system, once you can define the system, then it's getting people on board right is having the those educational tools to show people that it is mitigation that works it's proven it can work and you have access to that um and and just educating them on the how and the why and trying to change some of those perceptions right we know that that's the the other half of the battle and and i want to acknowledge that when you know as we've been talking this episode about um you know, all the different things that IBHS has done and all these things that different organizations are doing. It really does take a village, uh, even at IBHS, even though we're doing that research, we're doing that in conjunction with guys like Cal Fire, the U.S. Forestry Service, uh, NIST, all these different groups and, and other fire partners across the Western United States. We are trying to tack this thing from all sides, right? Because we know that it is not just one group that's going to solve it. It's just not one application that's going to solve it. It's everything working in concert, and I think um in it might have been you that referred to the, to these nudges, you know, we talk about that sometimes. It's like, what are some of the things that we can get to to basically enact this change? Um, I'll invoke a little bit of our, our fortified program in Alabama, right? We've seen kind of this system um, that's really working together in concert. It's taking a little bit from policy, a little bit from building codes, a little bit from the research side, and then applying that. The insurance industry is involved in that. Let, let's talk about that just for a minute and how important that is. It's not just one person's responsibility or even ability to fix.
1: Yeah. And, and in our insurance world, a lot of people will jump immediately to incentives. Well, incentives by themselves have been proven they, they won't work alone they have to have other pieces and parts to that um, and a lot of that is it's going to be spinning up the grant programs in the right places and for the right things to get to that system that we need to achieve so that's one step education and outreach can help a lot of times unfortunately what really works in the outreach space is very local events and that's resource intensive um, I wish all of us could be in 50,000 different places at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure folks at, at local fire departments want to have the same impact in that same space, but you're, you're limited, right? So trying to reach every person through those events is very hard. Um, but as we've seen with other things, if we can get the wagon going in the right direction, I'm going to use Commissioner Fowler from Alabama's line on, on the wind side. I really like it. If we can all start doing that, I think we can start to get the change happening. And I, I want to make a point, after lineup, if you look across really the whole space, from media to science to engineers to all of it, for the first time, we're talking about the same language, about how important zero to five is, the non-combustible walls. All of it is speaking. While the lingo might be subtly different, the themes are for the first time the same. And if we can just keep doing that, remarkably, when you repeat things, right, people eventually listen um, and it will work. <laughs> so there's those those elements too. And then there's financial elements too. I, I think about one of the biggest kind of in-your-face moments of how much risk you face is the price of your insurance. Yeah. We had a homeowner in a survey, um, the focus group we did, this was a few years ago, really had experienced fire close to their neighborhoods was actually shocked at how low the cost of their homeowners insurance was knowing the hazard people know the hazard Mm
2: -hmm. they don't
1: they'll underestimate the risk to them personally we don't need to go beat people with an iron skillet about the hazard we need to tell them here are the steps to do you may not like them and there's going to be a cost Mm -hmm. and we do not need to shy away from it because it's pay now or you're going to pay dearly later this these elements, if we're just straight up and honest, all these factors can start to work their magic, but you can't have just one. Just one won't work. Um, Fred Malik on Fortify calls it the ecosystem. Yeah, fancy yeah, yeah. word, but it is, right? It's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff all wrapped up together, pulling the wagon in the same way. So yeah. while I'm sitting here spouting cliches, it can work. It can work. But this is a problem, I actually think, to be honest, is one of the most critical in our natural hazard space because we're going to see this built environment conflagration play out again and again and again. Um, I had friends dealing with fires in southwest Louisiana.
0: Yes, right.
1: (laughs) To expletive, expletive (laughs) of that unfolding. And it was (laughs) flash drought, volatile fuels, and just by enough effort kept fire out of some small communities. This would have just played out again. Um, we need to go now in doing mm-hmm. something about this.
0: All right, and, and Steve, I'll get your thoughts on that because um, I, I'm curious too um, how you have seen this kind of evolve throughout your career um, and now being on the, the IBHS side of the messaging, right? You've always been out there doing this, but now involved in, in a different way. Like what, what has that been like uh, from your perspective and, and what, what strides have we been making and where do we still need to make some?
2: Yeah, I think you hit it right on at, you know, a few minutes ago where you mentioned that it's, it's an all of us problem. Um, mm-hmm. It takes all levels of government, um, organizations like IBHS and others Um, developing the science and and letting the communities know these are the things that work. We know these things work. You just need to implement them. Um, Policymakers, I mean, across the board, everyone who has a stake in the wildfire issue needs to be at the table and needs to rise up to this situation uh, because it takes all of us working together to make a dent in this issue. Um, So uh, we know that the codes work. Um, and getting those in place would be extremely helpful. Um, and then taking care of the the existing stock that we have through retrofit programs, um, and bringing all of our resources together. Uh, not everyone's going to have the same resources at their 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 uh, fingertips to be able to implement these things. So those that don't have um, those resources available to them, how do we make those available and get them the help that they need to to implement this? Because we know that. You know, it, it, one home can, uh, in close proximity to another, can impact uh, uh, when it's on fire, can spread that fire to the next home. And so we need all the homeowners in a given community to take these steps um, to to bring about true uh, community resilience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you hit a good point there, Steve, that it, it's the role of, of all of us, right? It's almost... it. We know that neighbor to neighbor influence is one of the strongest influences, and and also like neighbor to neighbor consideration and protection, right? It's it's about what it's about helping each other, right? We always see how these communities come together. Every time you hear sound bites of these people who are trying to pick up the pieces, they say, "Well, we're a tight knit community, and we come together, and we're gonna we're gonna build back, and we're gonna be better," right? We we see that human spirit kind of coming back and everything, but we want to apply that before the disaster happens as well, and understand that. None of these people that have gone through a disaster ever thought it would happen to them, and it's not convenient to, um, and not warm and fuzzy to think about what could be the worst day of your life and, and losing your home. But unfortunately, we do have to have some consideration and some of that mindset when we approach how to uh, build against the different perils that we face. In this case, we're talking about wildfire, but it really goes with anything that we study. Tornadoes, wind, hail, hurricanes, Um, it's all of it. And so, and and at the end of the day, all these organizations are working in concert and it's not just one organization to win over the other, right? The winner at the end of the day are the people in the communities that are prevented from seeing these kinds of disasters, prevented from seeing these kinds of tragedies unfold. And so that's really all we're trying to do, right, is just to make people safer and just to stop these kinds of things from happening uh, going forward. So um, with that, we'll wrap it up. But really quickly, uh, anything else that it's on your guys' minds? Um, uh, Ian, I'll start with you. And Steve, you're a resident fire expert, so I'll, I'll give you the final word on this.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think it's the sense of hope but this is a complex challenge. And and I remember this was way back when I started at IBHS, almost, this is 12 plus years ago now. Steve Quarles, are, who really developed the the foundation of our, our wildfire research program at IBHS, Steve and I were talking and I, I got to the conclusion of when I first started learning about all this stuff, I think wildfire could be the most mitigatable hazard that we face. And I don't even know if that's a word, mitigatable, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but Redefining it. it faces the biggest uphill climb because mm-hmm. of how it's changing so quickly and and how our communities have now butted up against these regions where fire may have been part of the landscape or maybe it wasn't, yeah. but they're really vulnerable. And for whatever reason, the mountain seems to be a lot bigger and steeper for whatever reason, Um Maybe because we just put our head in the sand or we thought we solved it years and years ago with our urban fire initiative and all that work. Codes you know, really helped. Uh, I hesitate to say completely solved it because we still have earthquake and fire issues, that compounding hazard problem. But um, we can do this. And I know that mountain's really steep, but this is a mitigatable hazard. Um, and it might even be the most because there are elements that are diy a lot of exterior features, and there you can see them, right? You can see those pieces that can work. Um, where sometimes with wind, right? Some of those things are buried behind the drywall. You don't see. Right. Them. I want my I want my good kitchen. I don't yeah. I don't care about the stuff behind there. Um, mm-hmm. But you can see some of these, and they're very tangible. Um, so let's get out of this concept that successes are random. There's usually a lot behind it, and we actually know mm-hmm. the critical actions that usually lead to those successes
2: yeah Yeah, and I think everything Ian said is right on Um, we've seen uh, a number of these uh, large-scale destructive fires now Um, there's no reason to think that those are anomalies anymore Um, these are going to continue to happen for the foreseeable future unless we do something about it and the good news is is we have a lot of science that tells us you know these things if you implement them they work and they make a difference And so educating everyone about what those things are, getting these uh, systems in place like codes, wildfire prepared home for dealing with the the, um, retrofitting of existing structures Um, and then communities embracing them and, and property owners embracing them and taking those actions and working together. Um, so that they can build not only resilience at the property level for their individual home, but at a community level, because we really need to keep the fire out of the community. Um, It's much more difficult once the fire enters the community on the firefighting response to deal with that uh, suppression of the fire and defending structures and protecting lives at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But good news is we know things work. We have um, some paths forward, and uh, we just need to take those paths.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. We have some paths paths forward. We are not hopeless, and um, we can we can do this. We can do this better, right? We can do this together. Um, so yeah, and I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time today um, to share your sentiments and, and your your insights on this. I mean, this is exactly the kind of um, episode that we want to have for these on the radar episodes, where we can really give you that insight to look into, like what what we're thinking um, as these events are unfolding, and um, all of the analysis that uh, well, a lot of the analysis that we mentioned here, um, IBHS did put out a public facing uh, report with these early insights on that you can go online and search for that um, IBHS lahaina fire early uh, insights and you can find that and read about the uh, the things that we've uncovered thus far knowing that yes there is still another mountain to climb as we continue uh, the analysis of this event uh, post-disaster and trying to to learn more from this but we Ultimately, we just want to be better for the next time to make sure that this doesn't happen uh, again and again. So, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on this episode of the IBHS Discussions podcast. Uh, Remember to follow us on social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. um, And you can also um, check more of our episodes out on uh, Apple Podcasts and some other uh, of your favorite listening platforms out there. So until then, we'll see you next time.
2: Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, in IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at IBHS.org slash Disaster Discussions Podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disaster Safety and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.